0: as a phrase that we're probably all really familiar with. He says that there is nothing new under the sun. And what Solomon is saying in that is that really there is, there is nothing new when it comes to the happenings of the world. We see the same patterns over and over repeating themselves, sometimes with slight variations, but all really with the same, the same core. I think of hairdos. For example, when I was in high school, you'd get laughed at and pushed in lockers if you walked around with a mullet, but now all of a sudden, uh, they're back in style, and uh, people are cutting their children's hair that way. Men are starting to wear these ridiculous haircuts, in my opinion, or the movies. Movies today pretty much have the same 10 plot lines that are just recycled and add little side things here and there to change it up a little bit. But this idea of of nothing new under the sun is especially evident when talking about sin. When talking about sin. Humans don't need to invent new sins because we already love the ones that we have. We have a Whenever a new sin arises in our culture, it probably isn't actually new, but just a twist of those same old sins. Abortion is not just a 21st century sin. Murdering or sacrificing your children to advance yourself or advance your career or to serve your own interests isn't something that is new. It's always existed. It just used to be done on a Uh, altar in a temple to some foreign god instead of being done in a hospital room today. Or building these technological empires that rival God is not something new. It was done long ago at the Tower of Babel as they tried to rebel against God, making themselves God, making an empire for themselves. Or the rampant sexual immorality that we see today. If you look at Greek cultures or Roman cultures in the ancient world or as far back as Sodom and Gomorrah, we see that sexual perversion has really been the sin of many cultures from the very beginning. And so there isn't really such a thing as as new sins. But even though there is nothing new under the sun, there are times when certain sins are going to become more prevalent in our culture. I mean, take the dark ages as an example. In the dark ages, materialism wasn't really a, a sin that many people struggled with because there wasn't really a lot of materials to love and to worship. But in our culture today, we've, we've built these, this vast empire of materials and goods, and materialism is live and well, even in the church today. And so the the culture and the generation that we live in is going to influence the sins that we are going to struggle with. And in this morning's passage, that's what we're going to be looking at. We're going to be looking at three sins that defined the generation of people that Jesus was preaching to. And remember, this is the same generation that Christ is later going to call a wicked and a adulterous generation. And though it's easy for us to read this passage and point fingers at them and examine their sins, I think that if we're, if we're honest with ourselves, we need to admit that, that the same ugly sins that Jesus is going to rebuke here are actually the same ugly sins of our culture today. And so let me read the rebuke that Jesus gives here in Luke chapter 7. And I want you to see if you can pick up on where this generation and where our generation has fallen. So you can turn your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Luke chapter 7, verse 31 to 35. And here God's inerrant, authoritative, inspired word. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come, eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. For this morning's sermon, as we walk through the passage, Jesus is going to highlight three particular problems, three particular sins with the generation that he's speaking to. You might be thinking to yourself, okay, he's talking to this generation that is standing in front of him. So what does all of this have to do with me? Well, As I mentioned earlier, our generation is much more like Jesus' generation than we might hope. In fact, I think our generation takes all of the sins of all of the cultures that have come before us and decides to embrace them and treat them as good. So there's nothing new under the sun, and our culture is defined by the same sins as Jesus' culture. And just like the disciples of Jesus' time needed to be warned against their sins, The sins of their generation, we too need to be aware of our culture's sins, lest we fall into them. My mom used to always quote to me, um, bad company corrupts good morals. Whenever I'd hang out with someone or whenever I'd be spending too much time in the world, she'd say to me, bad company corrupts good morals. And if I'm not careful to, to fight the pull of the culture to join them in their sins, I'm going to be corrupted. I'm going to fall. And how then will I fight against an enemy that I'm not aware of, that I'm not willing uh, to to recognize those sins and and to fight against them? And so my goal then is for you to reflect on whether Jesus' rebuke of his generation's sins could be true of you as well. Are you falling into these same sins? Are you Are you you being conformed more to the culture that is around you in these areas? Do you fit in more with with, what this generation is like? Or are you living counter-culturally to the commands of God, living for the righteousness of God? Before we look into these sins, let me quickly refresh you on, on what's happened leading up to this so far in this sermon. If you remember, Jesus has had an interaction with the disciples of John the Baptist, they've sent him to Jesus saying, uh, hey Jesus, you know, we have these questions. We're not really sure if, if, if you are the Messiah. You're not living according to the expectations we have. Can, can you reassure us in some way that you truly are the one who is to come? And Jesus in his grace and, and mercy to John and his disciples reassures them. He performs all these miracles in front of them. He tells them, this is what I'm doing. This is what God's word says the Messiah is going to do. And so you can be reassured that I truly am the Messiah. And after he sends away John's disciples, he then turns and he faces the crowd that's been listening in on this conversation. And they're tempted to, to you know, doubt the genuineness of, John, of John's faith because John has been having these doubts. He's been asking these questions. And then Jesus goes and he defends the character of John, calling him the greatest man To be born of a woman. And so now, he's talked about what John is like. But now he's going to focus on what the generation that he's speaking to is like. And he uses a parable to describe them. Now this parable is what some commentators call the parable of the brats. And as I read it again, you're going to to see why. Verse 32. They're like children... Sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. And so, what Jesus is doing here is he's comparing them to a, a game that children would play as they sit in the marketplace, where some of the children are going to sit and start to play a particular tune, and the other children are supposed to dance to that tune. And the, if the leader of the game goes and he plays a real happy tune, they're supposed to dance in a happy way. And if he goes and he plays a dirge, which is a sadder tune, they're supposed to weep and, and, and be somber and reflect the music that's being played for them. But the problem was, there were certain kids who didn't really want to, to always follow the leader's and the way that they wanted them to play. And the children then that were leading would get upset. And if you have kids, this is probably a very familiar thing for you. If the other kids aren't playing the exact way that they want them to be playing, what do they do? They, they get upset, or they say, you can't play with us anymore, or they, they go into the corner and they, they pout and wallow in their self-pity. And while Jesus says that that this generation is like those kids, it's like the kids who who get upset because others aren't going to conform to their standards, others aren't going to do things the way that they want them to, and so they they go off and they're not happy. And this leads to the, the first point of our sermon, the first sin of this generation, and that is the sin of discontentment, the sin of discontentment. Now, discontentment simply means someone who is who is unsatisfied is someone who is, cannot, is someone who cannot be pleased they are, they're insatiable whatever is is placed before them, they find something wrong with it and how discontentment bears itself out in our lives is through things like grumbling or through complaining or through uh, irritability or, or a, a miserableness that that comes over us. And we read earlier that this was the sin of the generation that was wandering through the wilderness. You know, they grumbled before the Lord. They complained before the Lord. They were hungry, so they complained that there was better food back in Egypt, that they were going to die in the wilderness. They complained to God, and He gave them bread. And then they went on, and they complained, oh, we don't have enough water. And so... God hears their grumbling and their complaining and God gives them water. And now, as they're about to enter into this land that they willingly admit is, is, full of, is flowing with milk and honey, once again, they complain to God and say it's too difficult of a task. Meanwhile, God has just delivered them out of Egypt and from their slavery. And, and Jesus essentially is saying, your generation, it hasn't changed. You are just like the grumbling, discontented complainers that came before you. If things aren't the exact way that you want them to be, you reject it. And specifically, in reference to the ministry of Jesus and of John. Look at verse 33 and 34. For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come, eating and drinking. And you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You see, essentially, what, what Jesus is saying there is, is that his, his generation wasn't pleased with either him or John, even though their ministries were, and their lifestyles were completely different from one another. You know, John was an ascetic. He was. Out in the wilderness, he was eating locusts and he was eating honey. He didn't eat bread. He didn't drink wine. He lived in isolation out in the wilderness by himself. He preached a, a hard message of repentance and judgment. But the, 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 the generation still found ways to have problems with John. They said that he's, he's possessed by a demon. But then you think, okay, well what about someone on the opposite side of the spectrum? And you have Jesus. You know, Jesus spent his time eating and drinking and, and spending time in the cities amongst the people, not out in the wilderness, and, and, and would preach a message of grace and forgiveness. But again, they had problems with that as well. And they called him a drunkard and a, a glutton. You see, they they weren't happy, they weren't content, they weren't satisfied with either John or Jesus, because neither of them were willing to, to play to the tune that they were playing. They wanted them to be like they were, but they weren't. And so they whined, and they complained, and they opposed, and they slandered, and eventually they had both of them killed. They were a discontented people. Now... Looking at our own generation, is that not also one of the chief sins of our culture, of our generation? A discontent heart. Grumblers when we do not get our way. Complainers when others won't conform in the ways that we want them to conform. You know, no matter what what happens, we're never really pleased or satisfied with what is before us. You know, all you have to do is go on Facebook or go on Twitter or even just go on a, a local news page and you'll see that this is true. We are a discontented people. We, we love to complain. We love to grumble over how things aren't going our way. We, we love to just find ways to pick apart even the, the good things if they aren't exactly the way that we want them to be. And it's especially true, I think, of how the world sees the true church of Jesus Christ, just like in Jesus' generation. You know, they rejected John the Baptist and Jesus, and the world, apart from the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, is always going to reject the church. You know, the world is always going to be looking to find problems and will never be satisfied with the church unless the church is, is willing to fully compromise on certain things. That's one reason why it's, it's really sad to see churches compromising on, on things in an attempt to try and win more people to Christ. Because the world is never going to be content with the truth. But we want to continue to, to, to get the church to compromise and compromise and compromise to the point where the truth is stripped so bare that there really isn't any truth left anymore. You know, think of the acceptance of of sodomy for example. You know, first the argument was don't call it sodomy. You know, call it call it something else. That's that, that's too harsh. Call it call it homosexuality. The second, you know the argument, because that wasn't enough, was okay, well why don't we just, just make it legal? You know, allow us to to do our own thing within the confines of our own home and our own bedroom without the fear of punishment. But then again, you know, that wasn't enough. And so the next step was, okay, well, well, let us get married. You know, it's it's not going to affect you and and your marriage and and, and your life. We just want to marry and have the same benefits of marriage that you guys all get. But still, you know, that wasn't enough. And so next it became, okay, we want to celebrate this in public. You know, put a put a pride flag on our store windows, change company logos for the month of June, have our, have our parades that march through town, paint a, a little sidewalk in, in Smith's Falls. But even that still wasn't enough for the world because now it's become, if you don't approve of this and if you don't celebrate this with us, you better watch yourself. You better watch yourself. We are coming for your job. We're coming for your children. We're coming for your churches until everyone bows to our will and to our way. You see, unless the church is going to give up the truth, then the world will never be satisfied. The world will never be satisfied with the church. The only God that they want to worship is a God of their own making. And so we as a church need to Reflect on that and say, we need to stop making it our mission to try and please the world because we never will. Just like John and, and Jesus did, we need to stick to the truth and hold to it. We call them out in their inconsistencies. We speak against sin. We, we don't conform, but we challenge the faulty worldviews of our days and we dismantle them and we leave them broken so the only place that they can run to is to the truth of God. We let the Lord change people's hearts. We don't change our message. But we would be ignorant to think that it's only those you know, outside the church and, and, and those who are in the world who are susceptible to discontentment, dissatisfaction, and grumbling. You know, we as Christians, we're, we're not immune you know, we're not discontent with the church in the same way that the world is discontent with the church and discontent with God, but we are discontent in our own ways. I think discontentment being you know continually upset, uh, con- continually bitter, continually displeased with the things and the happenings in our life, not satisfied with the things that we do have, is a sin that, that more Christians struggle with than we might think. I know that I have to fight hard to be content in the situations that I find myself in. You're not grumbling and complaining about the government all the time. Not complaining about my, my children when they're not obeying or when they're not listening to me or when they're being difficult. Not complaining and grumbling about my, my spouse when she isn't doing things perfectly—not that that ever happens with Hannah—but you know, not not complaining about our church. You know, our church isn't maybe the exact way that we want it to be. It doesn't have the exact people that we want. The the music isn't what we want. The preaching isn't what we want. There's not enough people. There's not enough ministries. Not not complaining and grumbling about those things. Not com, not complaining and grumbling in generally, in, in general about the the circumstances that the Lord has put us in, in our lives. Instead, you know, we need to strive to, with joy and and thanksgiving and contentment, to accept not only the, the good things that come our way, but sometimes the not so good things that God sends into our life. You see, when we complain, this is why why grumbling and complaining is, is actually such a dangerous sin and why we want to we wanna root it out in our children, we want to root it out in our own lives. Because when we grumble and complain and have discontented hearts, the one that we're really complaining against is God. We're grumbling and we're complaining against God. If you believe as I believe that God has firmly and, and divinely orchestrated Every circumstance that we find ourselves in, if a, if a trial comes our way, that it comes from the Lord, and if something is withheld from us, that that is the Lord's hand and purpose in that, well, logically from that, when we complain and grumble then, we might be saying to ourselves, well, I'm not, I'm not grumbling against God. I'm, I'm grumbling about my circumstances, but they're the same thing. They're the same thing. We are grumbling against God when we complain and have discontented hearts. Because God is the one who has put us in and who has kept us in those circumstances. Now, it's not to say that we can't recognize that things are wrong or that situations we find ourselves in are difficult. You know, we should be a people who don't you know, look at terrible things, look at the wrong in the world, look at the wrong in our you know, our, our lives and in our governments and in our marriages and our children and say, well, that's totally fine. No, we, we recognize that things are wrong. We recognize sin where it is present. We recognize that things aren't up to the, the ideal that we long for in the new heavens and the new earth. But there's a big difference between recognizing something is wrong and then bringing those to the Lord in prayer and, and asking him to, to work and to change those things, and then grumbling and complaining over it. One is done in faith, the other is done in sin. And so be on the lookout, then in your own life, for, for this, this type of attitude, discontentment and grumbling. Don't be like the generation of Jesus, in our generation, who is never satisfied Never pleased with others because they won't dance to the tune that you're playing for them. Never happy because people don't see our way as the greatest way and don't always give us things in the way that we want it. Instead, try to be, as Paul says in Philippians 4, verses 11, if I have learned, in whatever situation, I am to be content. And so moving on now to the Second sin of Jesus' generation that's highlighted, and that is the sin of pride and conceit. And I think it's partially related to discontentment as well. The sins of pride and conceit. And we see this by the fact that that the people and and the religious leaders specifically in our passage have put themselves in the place where they are the authorities and the judges to which John and Jesus must adapt. Now, if they are going to accept John and Jesus, they must do it their way and no other. You know, just like the little children in the parable, they either dance to their tune or there's going to be judgment. There's going to be some sort of, of, of consequence for not dancing and playing to my tune. And in doing so, what, what his generation is doing is they're really placing themselves above God. Rather than God's word being the authority They're making themselves the authority. It's as if the the owner of a company says to to his employees, I want you to to work a certain way. This is the way that things are going to be, and I want you to to act in accordance with that. But then all of a sudden, the employees all come together and say, that's too hard. I don't really like working that way. We're going to make our own standards of what it is we need to do. That's what they're doing. You know, in their pride, they've made themselves a greater authority than God. They're sitting in judgment over John and Jesus saying, you know, you're know, you not up. You're not up to, to the standards that we want you to be up to. And I think even more than discontentment, this sin of pride and conceit that we see in Jesus' generation is especially true of our generation today. We have, I think more than ever, this self-inflated view that the world and everyone in it has been put there to serve our wills. You know, it's all about me. We're, we're here to look out for number one. You know, we're here, we're here to, to make our wills and our purposes come to fruition. You know, the government. Why does the government exist? The government exists in Canada you know, to give me free education, to give me free health care, to give me free dental, a universal basic income, no more student loans, the whole nine yards. Why? Because that's what I deserve for, for simply being me. Or what about marriage? You know, my marriage exists to meet my needs. And if my needs aren't met, what's the point of staying in my marriage? Or if, or if someone disagrees with me, all of a sudden, they become my enemy. Why? Because they're not bowing to my will and to my views. All of these arise out of this, this conceited attitude that it's all about me. That it's all about me and it's all about serving me. And now rarely will someone come out and say, you know, I am proud and I am conceited and it's really all about me. No one, no one comes out and says that. Our, our, our society still has enough decency that we think that pride is not the greatest thing. But that doesn't mean that people aren't thinking that in their minds. It doesn't mean that people aren't living that way with their actions. Now you, can, you can diagnose this, this kind of attitude by observing how we respond when our wills are not met. You know, what we do when we don't get what we want. And depending on the type of person that you are, your pride and conceit is going to come out in different ways. Some, for example, turn to self-pity. Self-pity. And they have this this woe-is-me attitude. I deserve this thing, and because I'm not getting it, I'm going to make you pay by just pouting around Acting in self pity, you know, wallowing through life, giving you the silent treatment until I get what I rightfully deserve. And at the extreme end of that, it can even lead to depression. Now, I'm not saying that this is always the, the cause of depression because it isn't. Depression is a very multifaceted thing. But I do think that it sometimes can be the case and more often than we think that if you're struggling with depression, you might really be struggling with pride. You might really be struggling with pride. See, so if if you've, if you've elevated yourself and, and your will and your purposes to a, a level of God and, and people aren't treating you like God or, or circumstances aren't playing out in your favor or you aren't as good of a God as you thought that you would be, that can lead you to a very dark place. That can lead you into depression. Or others, instead of responding in self-pity, will instead turn to anger in order to, to, to deal with their pride. James says, why are there quarrels and fights among you? Is it not because your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet, And cannot obtain. So you fight. And you quarrel. Because others won't submit to you. And give you what you want. Your pride. Then leads to your wrath against them. Because they're not bowing to your will. And so others. Will turn instead to. Envy. Or jealousy. I don't have what I should have. I should have those things. I deserve a better life. And when it comes to others having better things than me, I envy them. And I and I I I can't rejoice with them when they succeed. And when they do succeed, I'm I'm critical and I, I wish that I had it for myself. I covet my neighbor's wife. I covet my neighbor's job, friends, successes, gifts. You know, I deserve all those things. I am the Almighty And I should have all of those things. And so all of these sins, self-pity, anger, envy, they're all really fruit of a deeper sin of pride and conceit. A self-inflated, a self-serving, a a self-assuring, self-loving, self-vindicating, and really a self-worshiping attitude of our hearts. And the only solution, if you are struggling with this, is to turn from your self-idolatry and to embrace humility. Job, for example, by the end of Job sitting there talking with his friends, Job, I think, isn't. Job is is full of of self-pity. Job is is falling into the pits of depression, but then... To solve that, what does God do? God comes and he confronts Job in his pride. And Job recognizes that he has not been humble. And he replies, I am unworthy. I spoke of things I did not understand. I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. And so that's the solution to self-pity that comes from pride. Or James says that if you want to remove prideful anger from your life, here's what you need to do. <clears throat> and here's what you need to know. That God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit yourselves then to God. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. You see, our pride might not be as overt as the people in Jesus' time, but it's still alive and well. In our culture. It just manifests itself in all of these other ways. And so evaluate your mindset this morning. <clears throat> How do you view yourself? Are you like <clears throat> the people of Jesus' generation? The people of our generation who say, you got to play my way? My way is the best way or else, there's no, or else there's going to be consequences? Or do you see yourself for what you are? A sinful, incomplete, Bad excuse for a God, a failure, but also a child of God, who is here to submit to the will of God and not your own will. And so we've looked at the sin of discontentment, never being satisfied. We've looked at the sin of pride and conceit manifesting itself in various ways. Now moving on to the final part of the sermon, and the last sin highlighted here, and that's the sin of foolishness. It's the sin of foolishness. Let me read again verse 33 to 35. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. I think more than anything, these verses highlight the other foolishness of the generation of Jesus. And by foolishness, I mean a a blindness to the wisdom of God and an inability to evaluate and judge properly. Jesus' generation had two of the greatest men, two of the greatest preachers proclaiming the truth of God, standing before them, and instead of seeing their wisdom seeing the hand of God clearly upon them, they mocked them. I mean, how much more off can you be with that? They, they literally thought that John was demon-possessed and that Jesus was a drunkard and a glutton. And they were supposed to be the religious leaders of the day. And yet they couldn't see their very own Messiah when he was standing right in front of them. They were blind fools more than anything else and not only did they not accept John and Jesus but they go even further and they scoff at them they go from from being simply fools to being scoffers and if in 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 the book of Proverbs we see this this progression that takes place in 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 steps of of foolishness first you have the simple and the simple do not embrace the wisdom of God And then you move from being simple to being a fool when you start to walk contrary to the wisdom of God. But then you have the most foolish of them all, and that is the scoffer who mocks the wisdom of God. And that is what Jesus' generation has become. They're scoffing, and they're mocking Jesus, and they would scoff, and they would mock Jesus, even as he hung there upon the cross. And in their foolishness, little did they know that they were rejecting the mercy and the kindness of God through Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and likewise, you know, our generation has got no shortage of fools. <clears throat> we live in an age when you can identify as whatever you want to identify. And it's expected that others go along with you in this, this imagination of yours or else you're a bigot. Or in hospitals, you know, in hospitals at one end of the hospital, you can have nurses and doctors working tirelessly to to save the life of a 24-week-old premature baby. But then at the very other end of the hospital, you have nurses and doctors working tirelessly to kill unborn children in people's wombs. If you think of that, that is, that is utter foolishness. Or, or in our world, and in, in, in the economic sense, you have a populace that thinks when the government offers them something free, that somehow that money is magically coming from somewhere other than our very own pockets. You know, the list could go on and on. And, and, and there's also no shortage of scoffers, along with the fools. Mocking of God and his people, people denying the existence of their creator, calling him an imaginary fairy god in the sky, thinking instead that they've come from bacteria. People using the name of our Savior as a curse word, mocking him, calling God's morals and and God's way of doing things and, and those who follow them as outdated and outrageous. But it's to be expected. You know, the... The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And Peter warns us in 2 Peter that in the last days, scoffers will come with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And so it doesn't surprise me, it shouldn't surprise you, that a generation that has abandoned God has also abandoned any trace of wisdom and has become fools and scoffers. Now, Is foolishness simply a temptation for the God-hater? Or can a Christian be a fool? Can a Christian be a fool? Yes, a Christian can be a fool. Paul says to the Galatian church, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Or the author of Hebrews rebukes the believers that he's writing to, saying, About this we have much to say. And it's hard to explain. Since you have become dull of hearing, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles and oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. See, Christians can be fools too. And we become fools by not listening to and obeying the word of God and instruction from the word of God. Proverbs 1 verse 7 Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 12, verse 15. The way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. Proverbs 28, verse 26. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will be delivered. You see, we become fools, just like the fools of our generation, when we trust in our own understanding instead of trusting in in the wisdom of God. And Christians can be that too. You know, biblical illiteracy is probably at the highest that it has ever been in a culture since, I would say, the time of the Reformation. We don't know our Bibles, and it's, it's produced a generation of foolish Christians. Now, is that you? Are you someone who, who doesn't know The word of God? Do you seek seek answers in the word for the decisions that you need to make or do you walk according to the wisdom of the world? What place does the Bible have in your life when it comes to forming your view on things? Is the Bible just this periphery thing that you you get to every once in a while when you feel guilty because you haven't read it? Or do you live in the word of God, seeking the wisdom of God. It's just the fool who rejects the wisdom of God. It's the fool who rejects reading and studying his Bible. And for parents, you know, if you want to raise children who are, who are going to be able to withstand the foolishness of this generation, then you especially have the responsibility to be teaching your children the Word of God. And so there you have it. The sins of Jesus' generation for which he rebukes them. Discontentment, pride, and foolishness. And as we've seen, it's not only the sins of Jesus' generation, it's the sins of our generation. And it's the sins that if we're not careful to fight against, to, to turn away from, that we ourselves will be drawn into them as well. And so how then do we prevent ourselves from from receiving the same rebuke that Jesus gives his people. Well, we need to do, actively, what the Bible tells us to do. And that is to examine ourselves. To examine ourselves. Go home today, think through these sins that we've talked about, and see if they ring true of who you are. And if they do, confess. Confess that you have failed. Confess that you have sinned and rebelled against God, repent of your sinful ways and ask God then to come and change your heart. Ask him to to take this discontented attitude where you're always upset, always pouting about everything that happens in your life and ask him instead to give you a a heart that is thankful for all of the blessings that you've given him. And if, if pride is that sin that you're struggling with, ask God to humble you. Ask God to change your heart that you don't strive after your will and your purposes anymore, but you strive after God's will. Your purpose in life is not anymore about making your will done, but His will be done. And if that sin is foolishness, well then, run to the Word of God. Study the Word of God. Give up the foolish activities that you waste your time on and spend your time understanding and knowing the wisdom of God. And if we do that, our culture is in a pretty depraved place. But if the church stands on the truth of the Word of God, if the church is fighting against the sins that the culture is trying to pound upon us, I would not be surprised if our culture starts to change and reject its discontentment and reject its pride and reject its foolishness. So let me pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this word this morning, which serves as a rebuke of the generation that Jesus is preaching to, but also, if we are honest with ourselves, serves as a rebuke of us. Lord, I admit that I do not live with a heart that is content in every situation that I find myself in. Lord, I admit that I grumble and I complain. And that though I think I might be grumbling at my circumstances, I am grumbling against you. And that is serious. And I repent of that, Lord. And I ask that you would give me a thankfulness, a joy, a contentment. Lord, in knowing that I have received all that I I could ever want and more. And Lord, you are a good and gracious God who has placed me in every circumstance I find myself in. And I also repent, Lord, that I have been a prideful man, that I have sought to advance my own will, Lord, in my family, with my children, with my my wife. And Lord, that I have responded in pity and I have responded in anger and in envy. And I pray, Lord, that you would humble me, that you would... Help me to see, Lord, that it is not about me, but it's about you and about your glory. And the true joy, true satisfaction comes when I pursue those things. And Lord, I also admit that there are times when I am a fool. Lord, when I forsake the wisdom of God. Lord, when I go through my day not thinking on the truth of God's word, when I pursue useless endeavors that have no eternal impact instead of pursuing the wisdom of God in your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would change my heart, put in all of us, Lord, a desire for the word of God. And we pray, Lord, that you would change us, save us from our sins, and that you would save our culture from their sins and lead them unto you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.